This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our guest lecturer today, um, I'm honored to introduce, is Dr. Bradley Jacobs, and he's going to be speaking on body, breath, and abundant energy, yoga for vitalizing physical health. So Dr. Brad Jacobs graduated from Stanford University School of Medicine and received a master's degree of public health from University of California at Berkeley. He then completed his internal medicine residency and general medicine research fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco, a spine medicine training at Kaiser Permanente, five element and medical acupuncture training at the San Francisco School of Acupuncture and UCLA, respectively. He's board certified in both internal medicine and integrative medicine, and he served as the endowed professor and the founding medical director for the University of California Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. And it's my great pleasure to work with Brad way back 20 years ago when he was our inaugural medical director. And it's such a pleasure uh, to have him back here today. Um, but I just want to say he's also currently um, director of Blue Wave Medicine with an office located in the award-winning Kavala Point Lodge in Sausalito, and he's a lifelong student of yoga and martial arts. So welcome, Brad, and thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you, Suda. It's really wonderful to be here. It's great to be here with you, and it's great to be here to be able to speak to everyone here tonight. Looking forward to our conversation. Um, so what maybe what I'll do is just sort of open by saying um, welcome to everyone here. I, today, tonight, we're going to spend some time really just focusing a bit on the clinical research as well as the experiential experience, personal experience of yoga. And um, it's a balance between the two. And I think I'm hoping that this, by the end of this evening, you'll get a sense for my own personal journey um, on on that's happened through the use of yoga and how sort of the life events that have unfolded before me and how I think about applying different therapies, in this case, yoga into my life to see what might be most beneficial for me. So this is a bit of evidence-based medicine, um, both looking at the literature, doing your own research, as well as your own personal experience with uh, yoga in this case. And I invite you to do this, have the same journey. Maybe you won't be doing clinical research, but you can definitely do the self-experimentation and do some of the research on your own reading literature if you're interested in that. So I'll do a bit of framing and tonight's really focused a bit on the physical aspects uh, or maybe attributes that may arise from the use of yoga. So um, Suda was kind enough to sort of to share a bit of my professional life and um, I'm only bringing it up here just as part of the story to, to tell you about my own journey, which is I am a lifelong student of really movement and mind-body uh, uh, therapies, if you will, or approaches to living life and contemplative practices. You know, I got to spend a year living in Africa after college, which has really profoundly affected me um, in a positive way and really given me a real-world experience of how life is outside of the United States and really helped shape uh, 
the uh, real view of what I thought were cultural norms were just norms, but actually they're really culturally bound. People live their lives. What's what's considered valid or not valid or okay or immoral and moral is so different depending on the culture that you're in. Um, and then really I've been a student of health and healing since childhood. So um, professionally um, I went to public health school I then went to medical school. It was really a big decision between doing Chinese medicine or medical school. And I'll speak to that on the next slide, what that was about. Ultimately decided to go to medical school and then training in internal medicine. So adult primary care medicine and integrated medicine, which is now a board specialty as of 2016. Um, and it's taken a while to get there, but it's here. And, and, you know, like cardiology and palliative care and emergency medicine, all the specialties now integrated medicine is one. Uh, both for better and worse, depending on who you speak with. But it really allows someone to have formal training before they actually can claim they're an integrative medicine physician. And just to speak to that for a moment, uh, what integrative medicine really means, at least in my view of it, is really the sort of allowing the full scope of what's possible, both diagnostically and therapeutically, um, into one's purview. So uh, as a clinician for a patient or the patient themselves, and a lot of that, it, as I think about it, is self-care first and foremost as a platform of lifestyle medicine, if you will, or just self-care. Um, and within that, yoga fits within that. Um, the next level up are maybe practitioners that can help you. Maybe that's an acupuncturist or maybe it's a yoga teacher um, and other sorts of sort of practitioner health professional support. Um, and then stacking above that might be supplements and or um, medications and then Above that might be more procedures and surgery, et cetera. So it's really a full stack experience. Um, and just uh, from my view, uh, medical doctors are uniquely positioned to be integrative medicine practitioners, because if you're trained as an acupuncturist or a chiropractor or other sorts of disciplines, you really don't have the conventional medicine training to be a truly integrative medicine physician or practitioner. So um, some people have a different view on that, but truly integrative medicine really is deeply bound in conventional medicine as well as everything else. So I then went on and did uh, several years. Uh, you know, I couldn't help myself. I wanted to go to Chinese medicine school, but I chose medical school for a variety of reasons. Uh, and then went back after my training in internal medicine and did a uh, full two-year training in five element acupuncture. And then also there's a medical acupuncture um, training too. That's a more limited at 300 hour training and then functional medicine and a lot of self-study. Um, and a lot of my time, as you see here, my career choices have really been about trying to create disruption and disintermediation within the healthcare system. So how do we innovate and make the healthcare system not you know, become more like all the other industries that are out there that are user-friendly, user that are transparent, that are, in, that are more holistic and integrated, that are sustainable, et cetera, et cetera. And how do we disintermediate um, you or me as the patient from getting access to a lot of things that we need? So um, thank you, Suda, for some of that introduction. I won't go through some of the details down below. Um, I will say one thing, which is AIHM is the Academy for Integrative Health and Medicine. And for those of you with interest in training, uh, regardless of your discipline, if you're a health professional of any sort, um, there's wonderful opportunities for that. And I was fortunate enough to serve on the board uh, for that for, for six years and serve as board chair at one point. Um, I do run a primary care uh, integrated medicine practice called Blue Wave Medicine, and it's based, unfortunately, I'm fortunate to be at Cavallo Point Lodge, which is in the Marin Headlands in Sausalito.
So um, my personal story um, for me is more interesting than the professional story, um, which really is I've been a lifelong student of martial arts um, and uh, starting since age eight. This is one of my main teachers, Adam Shu. He wrote this wonderful book that really has a lot about principles and ethics uh, and how to live a, a, you know, a good life um, in addition to Kung Fu itself. And for better and worse, you know, my journey was really influenced a lot by my grandmother for health, but also by my back. Um, and I suffered um, back issues since I was an adult, really, in my mid my mid twenties. And I can remember being in medical school and talking to a, a, one of the orthopedic surgeons, Dr. Kerrigy, there, who's a well-known spine surgeon, and uh, he fell a martial artist like me. And he looked at my spine and said, "Look, you're 25, but your spine looks like you're 45." And um, surgery is not your answer, but keep doing your martial arts, you know, keep active. Um, and then years later, um, as a young father, um, I had a small one-year-old um, who was taking out, I had on and off sciatica despite all this, right? So I'm about 37 or so. And then in 2004, I had this huge disc herniation and felt like a red hot poker was going down my leg. And I was dropped to the floor with my like 15 month old in my hands. <laughs> And on the ground, who thought I was just playing dead, I guess. Um, and uh, it was quite a major experience. And I had weakness and I had a lot of pain. Um, I chose not to have surgery. Um, I was at UCSF at the time. And a lot of my colleagues, were, I was working closely with the Spine Center um, when we were running the Osher Center. And a lot of them knew me. And they looked at me and said, you know the data, which is when you're out, it's really not no difference in outcomes, but you'll get a lot better sooner if you want surgery now. And I opted not for surgery um, and made my way through. And, um, but that really between the chronic intermittent pain and then this major event really set my course exploring yoga. Um, and, uh, and then I'll just say, just to finish the back pain stories a couple of years later, one of the reasons I did not opt for surgery is because there's a risk of reherniation when they do the surgery because they have to open things up a little bit to get at the disc to pull it out. And by opening it up, it allows for a chance of reherniation. Well, I didn't get the surgery, but guess what? I reherniated anyway. Um, and I had burned all my pain fibers away, I guess, at the time. So I didn't have any pain. I was completely numb and weak again. Again, I opted not for surgery. Um, and this time, uh, actually, I paid the price. So I, I actually have residual atrophy in my, in my calf. It's about maybe a third the size of my other calf and some, some maybe, you know, 15%, 10% weakness in my hamstrings and, and glutes. So I've had to manage this now, you know, fast forward decades later here at the ripe age of 58 and being, you know, active and athletic, how do you manage all this? And um, yoga has been a big part of my life. Um, as I say at the very bottom of the slide, it's, it's a daily practice for me. Uh, and without it, I, I would not be able to be as active as I am today. Um, so that's, and you'll hear the story as we go through, but that I can read all the clinical trials I want, um, but that the proof's in the pudding and I'm the pudding. And so uh, it works for me. And uh, what was most interesting actually um, uh, is a couple of pieces. One is my college roommate uh, was a devout yogi. Uh, he went after he went to call after he finished college, he went to India for a year and stayed in ashram and had a teacher and has really um, stay true to that practice years, decades later. He's a professor of philosophy, Paul Bloomfield at University of Connecticut. That's one of his books. Um, 
And he is literally two inches taller. His posture is completely different and he is a different human as a result. Um, so I went back to, he, he knew I was you know obsessed with martial arts and he was the yoga guy. And, but with all this, but these back issues, I went back to him and said, you know, okay, I'm finally willing to listen to you because he'd been knocking on my door about yoga. Um, and I slowly started experimenting with yoga and it really helped this chronic low back and sciatic pain. And one of the things I was taught is that if you have leg pain that's radiating down your leg, that it's concerning for your spine and or peripheral nerve roots coming out of your spine. And um, actually, it was most interesting. This particular pose, which is why I put it at the bottom of here of the slide, this half pigeon pose, is the one um, pose that really would relieve that pain. So um, it's very interesting that I think a lot of that pain was actually coming from the sciatic, sciatic nerve as it exits through the, the, the groove there out of the pelvis. And, and there's a piriformis muscle that pushes on. So there's a stretch here that you're doing. And I would stand up and the pain that was going down my leg would actually be gone. Um, so really miraculous and told me that what I learned in medical school wasn't accurate. Like most of the things we learn in medical school, they're sometimes accurate, but they have a, a half-life that's variable. Um, and in the middle, this picture is an MRI. So this is not my MRI. I decided not to put mine up, but pretty much mine looked just like this, which is a disc. You can see the dark um, sort of two lines that are dark in between the two vertebrae there. Uh, the bottom one's L5 to S1, um, the, the last lumbar vertebrae to the first sacrum uh, vertebrae, if you will. Um, and then that little balloon that's to the right is a disc. So the disc is made up of fluid and inside the fluid is this sort of more pulpous thing called the nucleus pulposa. And if it herniates the outer lining, almost like a balloon pops, and then the, the liquid comes out. That liquid is highly immunogenic. So it doesn't, it's not supposed to see uh, immune cells. And when it does, the immune cells just go after it because um, it thinks it's a foreign invasion. So it gets, you get a lot of swelling, a lot of pain. And then be, uh, because of that, you get more nerve compression as well. So um, so just to give you, that's a bit of my story. It's a, it helped frame our conversation. My daily practice really literally is anywhere from five minutes to 30 minutes of yoga, typically twice a day when I get out of bed and before I go to sleep. Um, so I, of course, was, you know, like I suggested, I asked myself, how can I, can yoga help me? Um, and I, as I mentioned, went to my friend. And from there, uh, really pursued Iyengar yoga, because from, from my experience, that was the most sort of, um, they did the most deepest work, BKS Iyengar, in medical issues, medical conditions, and they really, really were methodical about it and had very stringent training guidelines. And so that was sort of the path that I initially pursued through Iyengar and biased by my friend who's I de devout follower of that as well. So how do I go about figuring out if yoga is going to help me? And that's a question for me. It's a question maybe for you as well. That's listening to this tonight. There's so many sources of information to take things from. And in my experience, one is representative heuristics. The next is observed what historically sort of observed benefits that people have documented. And then they're documented sometimes in, in classical texts and teachers pass those on. And then the personal observation and then clinical research, whether you do it yourself or you read it in the literature. And if we were to spend a moment just talking about representative heuristics, which is really a bit of whatever's around me, you know, what looks like a duck must quack like a duck and therefore is a duck. 
Um, and that's just decision-making that's really based on something that mirrors the characteristics you're focusing on. This example here, you know, this is the person who stole something, there's a picture of it, and then you look around and who looks like this, and that must be the person who did it. And often we could be wrong, it could be arbitrary. We have our projections that we put onto people or our th things that we look at. Uh, my friend who's very persuasive and you know, literally changes posture and grew two inches and is a different being as a result of yoga, you know, definitely influenced me and made me think that, oh, maybe this can help that sort of process. Not a bad thing, just good to be aware that that's happening in our lives. What about historically observed benefits? So if you go through lots of texts, and I spent a lot of time in the looking at these, whether it's BKS Iyengar's texts or others, there's a big list of health issues that can be addressed by yoga. And back pain was one of them. And so then I started to look, oh, what are these poses supposed to be? And I went through them. It's like, oh, corpse pose. Oh, locust pose. Now that locust pose, that is not good for my back. So I knew when I went into that position, that's just going to make things worse for me. And then the, some of the yoga teachers would, would push me on that and say, you need to do it anyway. It's mind over matter. So, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later. It's really, you have to take control of what's comfortable for you and stay safe and really use yourself as the experiment, not simply give over your trust and your power to someone else. Um, fish pose, triangle pose, all, all these different things, right? So hypertension, fish pose, common cold triangle pose. Is that true? Uh, are there clinical trials on this? No, not that I've seen. Um, but is it interesting and worth experimenting with? I think so. Um, and on it goes. So there's a, the list goes on and on. So, and then there's personal observation. And that's one that's maintain a curious mind, right? So the curiosity is really allows for wonderful learning. You know, one of my colleagues and friends studies surprise. And if you put surprise in a lecture, people learn much more. And same with curiosity. If you maintain a curious mind, that allows you to be open. As soon as you lost curiosity, you're closed in your ability, your willingness and openness to sort of experiment or consider things that aren't necessarily in the normal run of your life. So here's some examples. This is me doing different poses. And some of these, there's the one that says, ouch, you know, this upward dog pose, uh, pose, my back does not like that. So I move through that pose, but in the beginning, I could not, not even go near that pose. So uh, these different poses really uh, can affect you. And I invite you to experiment in yourself to, to really see what these are like. And maybe we'll, we'll, this might be a good time just to take a moment and do just that. Let's spend a moment and just get out of our chairs. All of you, I'm inviting those that are attending to please stand up and get out of your chairs too. Um, and let's do just a couple basic movements. So let's start with ourselves just standing literally, and just noticing what it's like to stand. And I invite you just to allow yourself to rock yourself forward a little bit towards your toes and to rock yourself back towards your heels. I invite you to move and sway a little bit to the right and sway a little bit to your left. And then I invite you to even just circle, just draw a circle. And then when you're ready, you can go the other direction. Just allowing you to draw the circle. 
You can experiment also with your eyes open and closed. Be careful if your gait is a little off and unsteady, closing your eyes can make you fall. But it's definitely more challenging just to notice what is it like to close my eyes and then you can open when you feel ready or half close your eyes. So you just dim out the external stimuli. We really use our vision for balance as well. So when, we're, when we remove that, sometimes our balance can be off. But just, it allows us also just to drop in and notice our swaying a little bit more and just come to center. And when you're ready, you can just put your hands by your side and allow yourself just to stand comfortably. Maybe take a big breath in and just a nice big sigh. And I invite you, I'm a fan. There's different types of breathing practices out there, even amongst different yoga teachers. But I invite you to allow your diaphragm to drop when you breathe in. And what that means is, it's actually an active motion to do that. It requires energy to allow your diaphragm to drop. And it, what that means is to let your belly come out. So as you breathe in, you can put your hand over your belly. And just let your belly come out as you breathe in. And then exhale. And as you exhale, the diaphragm contracts. And that process of actually the diaphragm moving in that process actually engages part of our nervous system. That's the calming part of our nervous system, which is called a parasympathetic nervous system. And it, there's something called the vagus nerve that innervates our diaphragm. And so by doing conscious breathing practices, and you'll learn more of these over the course of this course here, over the next five, week, five more weeks or four more weeks, you'll notice these practices and you'll notice a sh potentially a shift in your heart rate and the stress you feel, your self-experience of stress. So let's just spend a moment, put your hand on your belly and just allow yourself to breathe. As you breathe in, allowing your stomach to expand. And as you breathe out, allowing your stomach to come back to neutral. I like to actually allow our exhalation to be a little bit longer than the inhalation. If you're sort of regulating that and you can go in for a count of three or four and exhaling for a count of four to six. And it's just nice and slow and relaxed. Notice your heart rate. Maybe just notice your pulse running through your neck, your temperature, your thoughts, where your mind might be, how your body feels. I, for one, for example, am giving a talk, so I can get a bit of a dry mouth when I you know, because my sympathetic drive is going, but now that's gone away. So just check in and notice. And what I'd like us to do now is simply just reach up and raise our hands up and just do a big stretch and extending 
our back and our head, just looking up towards the sky, and then bring our hands down by our sides again. And then one more time, bring your hands maybe in through our center, pointing our fingers upward and reaching up towards the sky with our fingertips up as we're breathing in. And then we're exhaling and we're bringing our hands slowly down. And we can try the other direction. So our hands are going to come up along our sides and we breathe in. And then we can bring our, clasp our hands together and bring our hands down through our center, over our face and down in front of our heart. And let's do that one more time. So we'll slowly start breathing in as our hands start rising above our head and above the sky, looking upward comfortably as we extend our neck and not be sure not to shorten your neck and pinch it as you look upward and then as you're coming back down and exhaling with our heart or our hands in front of our heart one more time and let's do this one last time breathing in looking upward extending our neck so we're not shortening our neck and then bring our hands down as we exhale hands in front of our heart in front of our chest. And then just to mix it up a little bit, one final move we can do is tree pose if we feel comfortable. That would be standing on one leg. So you can do that with simply lifting your heel up and just having the ball of your, one of your feet on touching on the ground. With So heel, let's say in this case, my right leg, my heel, I'm standing normal. And I've just lifted my heel up, so the ball still planted on the ground to give me some stability. Or if we're feeling a little more open to a challenge, we could bring our foot against our other foot so that the heels up against the, the, the shin and the feet is touching the other foot. And then we could slowly, if we feel more comfortable, bring it up higher. Maybe our feet is lying against our entire calf and it's off the ground completely. Or maybe up toward the knee, or up to the thigh, whatever feels comfortable for you. And it helps sometimes to bring our hands out. Sometimes it helps balance and look far into the distance. So gazing further out into the distance helps bring our balance in. Sometimes people put their hands above their head. Sometimes they put them in front of their heart. Any and all this is just a beautiful thing to do. And what we're trying to do is just stand on one leg now. And then let's bring that leg down. We run it down along the leg. Now we're standing on two feet again. We can call it some mountain pose. And we sort of notice our center, notice our structure, how our neck, how our head stacked over our, on our neck, which is stacked onto our shoulders. And how the shoulders are stacked over our pelvis and chest over the pelvis and knees and feet. Just notice how you're stacking yourself. And now we're going to shift. So we're going to go to the other side now. We're going to just lift the heel up a little bit, but keep our foot, our the balls of our feet planted on the ground. And if we're feeling more daring, we can rise up a little and just have the toes of my, in this case, this leg here, my right leg, or against the arch of my left foot. And if I'm feeling a little more daring, I might bring it up. So now it's against my calf muscles, the medial aspect of my calf. 
and my heels up towards my groin. My toes are pointed down towards my foot. And then I can bring it a little higher if I want, up to the knee, and again, up to the thigh, whatever you feel comfortable. In my case, for example, I have a tear in my labrum, it's called, in my hip. So to bring it further higher up actually is uncomfortable for me. So I'm going to modify that. And I invite you to do the same based on your strengths and limitations. And then you, you feel comfortable, your hands can come up. And you can see here, I just came down and now I come back up again. So you can simply drop your feet down if you get off balance and whatever feels comfortable for you. And while we're doing this, remember our breath. <laughs> so we'll come back to our breath. There's all this physical effort we're doing and then we lose track of our breath. So let's come back to our breath if we can while we're doing this pose. And just back again to that nice breathing. Let the belly come out as you breathe in. Belly come back towards our spine as we exhale. And then let's drop our foot back down again and come back to our mountain pose. And finally, we'll just do one more. We're reaching up towards the sky. Our hands looking upward. Bring our hands in front of us across our face and down over our chest in front of our heart. And then just a gentle forward bend. So with my back, I tend to bend my knees a little bit. I drop my head and I allow myself just to go to wherever's comfortable. I'm folding forward and over, dropping my hands, my head, bending my knees a little bit. And then when I come up, I bend my knees a lot more. I engage my buttocks muscles, and my hamstrings, and I stand up. Really being careful. You see, I'm not doing the straight leg. I'm bending as I come up and I curl back up. All right, it's nice to get a little movement. We can shake it out a little bit. And then maybe we can do a little more conversation. I can show you a little bit more. It's nice to get out and move a little. And I'm hopeful that experimenting a little bit with your breath and a little bit with your balance, a little bit with moving some of the body parts, really sort of in invites you to be curious about what your body can and can't do, where your mind goes. For most of us, doing all these movements captures the busy mind that normally has a thousand thoughts. And I'm sure that, at least I know I did even while I was speaking, you know, if um, when I'm just doing my breath and counting my breath, you know, our, the thoughts are coming and going, coming and going. That could be its own interesting exercise as well, just observing what the thoughts are and then coming back to your breathing. Um, but when we tend to sort of do these asanas, these physical movements, part of the, the trick, part of the, the, uh, the, the challenge and the opportunity there is that it forces us to bring our mind to the present moment or we fall over, you know? Um, so it's a wonderful exercise because of that. It really drops us in. And I, I don't know if it's going to be spoken about later, but there's something called the default mode network, which is sort of the ruminating, worrying aspect of our mind it's the, it's a loop in our brain all these parts of the brain to do this loop we call the default mode network network of neurons and um that can dampen and there's lots of research looking at that doing these practices so there's the quieting of that that monkey mind we call it when we do this sort of practice it's a, it's a wonderful thing and all of a sudden people like i have so much more energy because many reasons but one of them is because the mind takes up so much energy when it's 
running and running and having thousands of thoughts. Okay, so let's go back to a bit more of this PowerPoints. So let's talk about research. Um, so my approach towards this, I was at, the, at UCSF at the time and doing research um, was to actually consider doing the research myself. Because in my personal experience, I knew it was helping me. And there had been very few clinical trials done at all at the time uh, in 2002, roughly, when um, I started being very interested in this. And I knew I was getting benefit and there wasn't, and the yoga teachers and, you know, all the classics, everything that we just went through showed, yes, this can help for back pain. And it made sense that it would help. So we went ahead and did some research. Um, now, if you look, I did this, this is a filter on PubMed where you can see, I filtered it for only meta-analyses, randomized controlled trials and systematic reviews. And can, you can see going back to 75 to 2000, there were, the, you can see right there, 43 results, not a lot let alone for yoga, for back pain. I don't, I think there was like one pilot study maybe. Um, so what happened? Fast forward, now the 2022. Now you got 1,431 results. Look at that. 43 to 1,431. It's amazing what two decades will do. So um, what we ended up doing is I was fortunate enough to get some funding to, to do a randomized trial looking at yoga for back pain. And in brief, we saw some pretty reasonable effects, not nearly as profound as I had personally experienced, but some reasonable effects. And I just want to acknowledge all these wonderful people that helped make this happen for me. Um, and Harley Goldberg, I'll just mention, um, has, was a, a beautiful being who really led the effort at Kaiser uh, and brought integrative medicine into Kaiser and uh, did so much in the world with respect to that. So um, we ended up doing a pilot study. It was a randomized clinical trial. We had 52 people in the study. It went on for 12 weeks and we had 24 classes and people either got the yoga or they got waitlisted with some like educational pamphlets. And the process, I will admit, the process of, of coming up with a curriculum and the process of bringing together all these very senior teachers, these are like really senior teachers, was very interesting. Um, I had hoped that, you know, we, we, we lose our egos as we mature in our, our, our yoga training process. There was a lot going on there. But we ended up coming to this wonderful place where we both recognized a semi-structured protocol where we used breath to regulate attention onto the body and emotions and poses, standardized poses. We, can, we all could agree to seven of them or not we, I was just there as the mediator, the teachers agreed to seven standardized poses. And there were some optional poses that the teachers could invoke if they thought that this particular person needed this pose versus that pose. And that's the beauty of an advanced teacher, which we'll talk about later. How do you find a good teacher? So this is what we did. And then the sequence, we came up with a general sequence, which we start with standing, we move to sitting, then lying, then, then you close with corpus pose. And we encouraged a home practice. And so we, we encouraged folks, it was twice weekly for 12 weeks, and then they were supposed to do it at home five, five days a week for a half hour each time. And we found a reduction in pain, that's the red line. But what you'll see is, unfortunately, when we randomized, people ended up in, that were more severe ended up in the yoga group. I mean, that's bad for us as the researchers. It was probably good for the people because they were suffering more. But by sheer, by sheer sort of happenstance, by, you know, random events that the group that 
got the yoga first was more severe, but you could see that they got better. And you could see the folks that were in the wait list really didn't improve that much. Um, similarly for um, this as well, with respect to the Roland Morris, which is really like function and, and how bothersome it is for you. They really, again, uh, improved dramatically. And you could see the yellow group didn't improve, that they didn't change at all. Again, you could see it was much more burdensome at baseline for the folks that got the yoga. So it was just sort of bad luck for the study, but you can see the benefits. And again, emotionally, sleep, these all improved. Um, you can see the point the p values on the far right side. If NS means not significant, and then you've got um, for men, salivary cortisol levels went down. Um, for women, they didn't seem to change. And then you could see though at the emotional well-being and sleeplessness both really improved. Um, and one of the interesting things uh, I found about this is that yoga allows you to be in a controlled experiment with respect to back pain. And what I mean by that is you're in a class, you're supervised by an expert, you know, someone that you trust, and they're giving you these poses to do. So you're allowing your body to go into movements and positions that you normally wouldn't do, you'd be afraid to do. And as you do it over and over again, then you do it at home in a very confined way. Then as you move through your life, you're able to do these movements throughout the day and not have the same sorts of disability that's happening. And the more you move, the better it feels and the less bothersome it gets. So I think that is, if you think that through, that is sort of the reasoning that even sometimes pain levels may not change, but actually their ability to move and function didn't actually improved. And maybe their pain level is the same because they're doing more uh, and they can tolerate that level of pain, but they can do more. So uh, then we, there was another uh, a uh, study done by Galantino, smaller study, but also showed benefit. And then Karen Sherman did a large study up at University of Washington. She did 100 people, very well, uh, very rigorous study that also showed improved function and bothersomeness. So you could see here that, you know, in the subsequent years, uh, and this is just a graph showing that at baseline, the, the Roland Morris disability score was quite high. And then they randomized either yoga, that's the red line, which improved the most. That's why it dropped the furthest and was sustained after 12 weeks after at week 24. And then exercise, it helped it, but not substantially versus the education uh, booklet itself didn't do much at all. So there's a big Cochrane review. Uh, Cochrane is an organization uh, of volunteers, of uh, academics typically, but not but researchers in general that volunteer their time and they say, we're going to focus on yoga for back pain. I'm going to review all, you know, a group of us can review all the literature that's out there in the world between, you know, 1975 and now, um, whenever now is. And then they write it up and say what they found so far. And so what they show here, it's always fairly conservative. What they, and, and again, what they show is small to moderate improvements in back-related function, slightly, might be slightly more effective for pain, not associated with serious adverse events. And we need some, we need more additional high quality research. Um, so what's interesting is yoga is associated with more adverse events than non-exercise controls, but that may, but may have the same risk as other back focused, focused exercise. In other words, yeah, you might twinge something or hurt something while you're doing the yoga um, because you're doing things versus people that aren't doing anything. Um, but overall people are improving. So I don't, we didn't want to spend too much time on back pain, but I wanted to give us this as sort of a, it's my personal journey. It's my passion. It's what brought me into yoga and uh, the profound benefits, not only for my back, but for, for my sleep, doing this daily practice that I do for my sleep, for my stress levels, for my muscle tension, 
um, and on and on, I, you know, I, you just feel the difference. Your pulse rate drops, your, your blood pressure gets modulated, your sympathetic drive quiet. So for me, that's, this is the journey. Um, and so just to go through some other research, just to, so you know that it's out there, it's all preliminary, really. And I just want to say one thing, which is, had this been a pill that was patented by a pharmaceutical drug company, these studies of 26 people here and 50 people here and 100 people here would be 100x in magnitude and size because there'd be the money to put into it because there's a return on that investment. So that's a bit of the challenge in this field. Um, and so we just need to have a bit of patience with that. So this is a, uh, a review of clinical trials looking at, uh, I'm sorry, this one is actually through, is a randomized controlled trial looking at yoga and home-based exercises for chronic neck pain. And it actually showed that yoga was more effective in relieving chronic neck pain than home-based exercises. And it reduced the pain intensity and the disability and improved quality of life. So again, for neck, we'll speak to this, both the, the spine in general, the low back and the neck, you really need to be with a qualified instructor or you could injure yourself. And we'll speak to that a little bit more later. So again, looking at carpal tunnel syndrome, this clinical trial that was published in JAMA in 1998 was a big deal, and it really showed improvements. There's something called the Phelan sign, and you can see here that there is market improvement between if you just splint someone with carpal tunnel, which is the pain in the wrist here, right? People can do that from repetitive stress injuries, we call it, from typing all day as an example. And you can see the market improvement from yoga. Uh, moving on, just to mention like stress markers, as I talked about earlier in our breathing practices, healthy volunteers practice yoga breathing for 30 minutes for 10 weeks, and you could see lipid peroxidase markers completely shift. So you can see here that really there's, there's a lot of opportunity and a huge range of, of, of different um, health issues and health, health conditions. Uh, it was also looked at for asthma. And the, the data overall is, is there is not a lot of studies and, and it's mixed. This one here showed that it reduced airway hyper-responsiveness in asthma. It's a small study. Um, and you could see here that this is, there was a big focus really on yoga breathing practices. And then the Cochrane Review looked at asthma overall and they said they found moderate quality evidence that yoga probably leads to small improvements in quality of life and symptoms in people with asthma. Now, in my view, I think, how could this help? How could yoga help at all? Why would someone even do this study? Um, but clearly, you know, we know asthma is related to sympathetic drive for some people. So when people exercise, um, they can get it for some people. Um, when people get stressed, their asthma can come on. Um, and so it, maybe that's one mechanism. It's really unclear, but that people have had uh, anecdotal experience of positive benefit. So there's more uncertainty about the potential adverse effects of yoga and its impact on lung function and medication usage, meaning go do yoga. Don't worry about your medication. You don't need it. That's sort of what they're saying, which is most hopefully people aren't suggesting that anymore. <laughs> And then randomized control trials with large sample sizes um, are needed, right? So basically we need to do more research, but interesting nonetheless. And uh, I think you'll learn more about this through the course, about different types of breathing practices, pranayama uh, types of breathing practices and, and others that they used in that study as one example. So then there's the overall yogic lifestyle. And, and really this had to do with not only doing postures or asanas, but, um, but different types of um, 
a different type of diet and really a, a bit of more of a, a philosophic um, orientation towards life in general. And what they found here in this randomized trial, it's hard to double blind people because you sort of know what you're eating and you know if you're doing yoga or not, hence the single blind. Um, you could see reductions here. And you can see here in angiographic lesion severity, actually they saw 20% of those doing yoga regressed. They had improvements in their cardiovascular disease through a coronary angiogram versus um, 2% regressing. And then you could see here that third, a third of the folks that didn't do the yogic lifestyle change progressed. They had more cardiovascular disease versus only 5%. So really interesting. Um, I think they'll be speaking more about emotional well-being. Uh, I'll just show this one study showing a benefit related to depression, um, which you can see strongly here. This is called the Beck Depression Index Score. And then what about high blood pressure? Again, um, this one shows it's as effective, if not more effective than hypertensive drugs. Um, and and I, you know, this, I think, um, is really provocative. Um, these look at systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, and heart rate. And you can see yoga and drug versus control. And there's really no difference between doing yoga and drugs. Although if you look graphically, you could say actually yoga looks better than drugs, but I think statistically there's not a huge difference, but there definitely was a difference between control and the others. So the, the thought being that yoga can be almost as good as medications for these, at least this group of people, this is 33 people, it's a small group. Um, so clearly again, as it goes back to our sympathetic drive, um, as one piece, there may be others as well for this to explain this. Also, diabetes is a small study looking at it as uncontrolled, meaning they didn't have a control group. Um, and they had folks doing yoga and um, they found a reduction in glucose. Is that because they, you know, were they being taught other things about diet? Is it the yoga as an exercise that really, in essence, was allowing folks with diabetes to exercise more who otherwise wouldn't be exercising? Did it re result in improved sleep? And we know that people that have improved sleep have reduced cravings for food because when you don't sleep well, you have you kick in a starvation mode. Um, so there's lo lots of uh, questions in my mind about um, why this may be true, um, but interesting nonetheless. So shifting gears a little bit, what do I do next, right? So, okay, now I'm open to considering yoga. Um, now what? And it really depends on your health situation. If you're generally healthy and just interested in improving your quality of life, it's really, you can experiment more freely. Um, if you have some medical issues, then it really requires a bit more discernment and you need to find teachers, ideally that are registered yoga therapists um, because they've done a significant amount of training to be there or they're health professionals that also are yoga teachers. And those health professionals understand whatever it is that you are coming in with, whether it's high blood pressure or it's spine conditions. Um, so, you know, for example, um, a nutritionist may not know who happens to be a yoga teacher and you come in with spine problems, there's not really a match there, right? Of that knowledge. So you'd want to see how much of the yoga knowledge they have. But if it's a medical doctor who's, um, you know, a general internist or an orthopedic surgeon um, and you're coming with spine problems, yeah, they, they, they'll be a lot more mindful. Um, so as an example, if you have high blood pressure and you go into a class that has high temperatures or they're overly vigorous, 
could that increase your blood pressure? Or if you're subject to low blood pressure and you're in extreme heats and you're prone to dehydration and you could pass out. Or if you're going from, they have you go from inversions and from an inversion posture upside down of some sort, and then they have you come up quickly. So, and then spine and joint limitations in particular, um, be wary of overly zealous instructors or schools that lay hands on your body in an unskilled manner, meaning they're pushing you and it's uncomfortable. Or they're sort of giving you the mind over matter perspective. And I can remember being in some classes and watching that happen. And one class in particular, my wife was in and they did that and she had a knee issue and she got up and left, you know, because they actually manually got involved with her and telling her to just push through the pain when she has a significant knee issue. So you really want to be sort of mindful and make sure you're going to the, to the right um, types of folks. So again, inversions, folks with high, without, you know, uncontrolled high blood pressure or glaucoma or during menstruation, um, also overly heated classes during pregnancy. So there's forced postures, what I'm talking about, when people come up and push you into postures, you really need to make sure that you're with someone for quite some time. And there's a trust there before you're allowing people to put, put hands on you. You know, this is just a bit more of a view, you know, going to medical centers or yoga schools that offer yoga as therapy um, or taking classes specifically, but, you know, with folks that are trained as yoga instructors that are knowledgeable using yoga as therapy. And you may want to be inquiring how many years of training do you have? Or are you a registered yoga uh, therapist or not? So there's really no standardized training. Um, the yoga teachers can be very, you know, a Yangar Hatha yoga teachers, for example, their curriculum could be 200, uh, 500 hours. There's whole, all these different levels of decades of training that folks have had and experienced teaching. And Yangar, the Yoga Alliance, has a registered yoga uh, teaching standards as well. Um, and then there's yoga therapists. Again, there's not complete standardization there. The International Association of Yoga Therapists is one of the more rigorous ones. Um, and you'll see next to folks' names sometimes RYT, which is a registered yoga therapist. And my understanding, although it's a bit confusing to me, and, and Suda may know otherwise, is that you, it's required to have 500 hours. But I, I was looking recently, and it looked like they may now allow a 200-hour RYT, 200-hour RYT, 500-hour as well. So again, the, the International Association of Yoga Therapists, they have a certification process and they're quite rigorous. You can see here that in order to just be considered to be certified, you have to have completed at least 200 hours of yoga teacher training and 650 hours of yoga therapy education that started at least five years prior to the date of your application. You have to have at least 20 hours of mentored practice as a yoga therapist in training. You have to have 200 hours of active engagement in the field of yoga therapy over the past years and at least 400 hour additional hours specifically applying contact practice as a yoga therapist. So it's, here's an example of a lot more rigor. So really we have some, some time left and I thought maybe we could spend a little bit of time answering questions and, uh, and just exploring what else we, we might want to talk about. Thank you, Brad. That was a really, really great uh, presentation and I think incorporated a lot of the really um, uh, practical, useful tips in terms of how you might go about selecting a yoga therapist or a, or a yoga class, which were um, some of the questions that were actually raised towards the end of our introductory lecture last week. So thank you very much for covering that. Um, there are a couple of questions that came in while you were speaking. Uh, one person uh, wants to know, 
what asanas help specifically with carpal tunnel. I find sometimes that even table pose aggravates my wrists after a week of computer work. Yeah, so I'm not a yoga teacher, so I, I wouldn't want to speak into that. But I will say that um, they did. There are a lot of different stretching poses, basically that they, that that um, were included. You can even look up the study. It actually showed the different. I think it was Garfinkel, if my memory is correct, in 1998 in JAMA. They actually showed the different poses in that study, and I'd recommend you do that. You explore that. But that is um, uh, that. That'd be my recommendation. Priya, you're a certified yoga teacher. I know you. I, I don't believe you are one of the IAYT. I'm not IAYT, but I am a certified yoga teacher. I happen to, um, you know, if, if you don't mind, Brad, I, there's a couple of like little stretches that have become really helpful, um, especially with just being able to sort of stretch this part of the body and then also through the hands. Um, in in yoga specifically, if you if you go to some um, more traditional books of yoga, and even the way that I I'll be honest that I was introduced to yoga was by individual joint movements, and so just as Brad was just showing, one of the basics to do um, the they'll, they'll, the way that I had started with some teachers in India was generally before you even start stretching the hands you just place them out and go through a full range of motion of the joint and that means you're keeping the arm completely straight and you're just trying to move the hand with a straight finger through the range of motion of the wrist and that's sort of just to warm it up you can make circles you can go back trying to pull your fingers towards you go for as far down as you can after that you start to try to actually stretch out the fingers and the wrist. And if you see here, I'm going to try to first keeping this part of my palm, trying to keep that forward. A lot of times people will bend and pull. You don't want to do that first. You want to almost be trying to push out from here while then pulling the fingers back. Okay. So I'm trying to push out from there, pulling the fingers back. So I'm actually stretching first through the hands and the fingers. Now, if you do have carpal tunnel, you might start feeling a little bit of tingling and you want to differentiate the tingling and numbness from pain. Okay. If you feel tingling and numbness, that's okay. If you feel pain, you, you stop. Now, after you stretch out the fingers, then you try to pull from here. So I'm actually going to cover kind of the whole palm. And now I'm trying to pull back this area that originally I was pulling forward. So that's one beginning stretch. The second one is a bit tough. I don't hope that there's nothing messy on my floor here, but I'm going to try to show <laughs> it here. If I was on all fours, okay, I'm going to turn, this is my left hand, and I'm going to turn my fingers are facing towards myself. And I've got my hand now on, you know, my palm is all the way on the floor. I would be on the floor. I'd be on all fours here. Or actually, this is the first time I've ever done it on a desk. This is an incredible stretch on the desk. Um, from here, all I'm doing is I'm going to put my, I'm, I'm actually, I'm doing this a little backwards, but I'm, I'm making this up as we say it, because I, learning to do this backwards actually seems to provide the exact same thing. You start with your fingers now, and you push down, and you almost try to roll like you're trying to get a nice, smooth fingers, then palm, and then all the way to the very front of the hand. If you wanna feel it a little deeper, all you have to do is sit back slightly. 
So if I come forward, you'll feel it less. If you come back, you're going to feel a very strong stretch in this part of the forearm. Um, that is actually in a lot of different movement. Um, let me back up and say, if you do yoga regularly and go through each and every joint movement, the idea is that that should be preventive from developing these issues in the first place. Now, if you don't, then you need to start doing a series of, of first slow and then slow and light and then into deeper stretches on a regular basis to start and try to really open up everything that's going on around here. Um, and especially if you have, you know, poor positioning or constant and repetitive use in this um, position. That was great. <laughs> the one thing I'll say um, is just be mindful. If you have carpal tunnel, mm -hmm. it's super sensitive. So go gentle. So like do what Priya did, like, you know, a, a fifth of that intensity, right? And, yes. and then see how you feel the next day. Or even if you overdo it, I've done this before and I don't even have carpal tunnel when I've done that and I'm feeling good and I come out of it, I'm like, oh, that I went too far. Like you notice that because, and so let alone if you're inflamed, whether it's carpal tunnel or any part of the body. So give yourself time. We're so, we're, we're not used to that, but when you're putting your body in different positions, give yourself time, like, to experiment okay that wasn't enough the next day you go a little more um the last thing you want to do is overdo it and then you're not you can't touch it for a week and to your point brad i am a pediatrician and so um you know the the kiddos can really be bent and twisted <laughs> a lot more um than the adults and so i don't have too many patients who actually have carpal tunnel this is just what i've learned and so definitely listen to brad there underdo it rather than overdo it yeah take the bra as my one of the trainings i'm doing now go for the bronze <laughs> <laughs> right oh brad here's another question for you uh, do you feel like we are in a new era where yoga as therapy is recommended equally to patients along with medication? For so long, it felt like medical schools gave little to no credence to such alternatives. Is that tension between pharmaceutical interests and practitioners a thing of the past? Sadly, not yet. But, I, I, but on the other hand, you know, clearly... Um, so it's a yes and no. So the vested interests are there. And so the funding for, you know, 100,000 people in a clinical trial for cholesterol reducing medication to show statistical but not clinical differences, but then allow them to publish it and get FDA approval because you have 100,000 people. And it statistically shows the benefit, but clinically it didn't really matter, but they still get approval. That's there, right? Yoga is who's going to fund that study. These are tens and tens of millions of dollars of study. That sadly is still there, but you know there are philanthropists, there are nonprofits, there are the NIH. You know that's putting more energy. And as you put in your slides last talk, you know it was a hundred million dollars, right? That was mm -hmm. now uh, put into research looking at yoga as um, right for mind body medicine or yoga as well. So, um, and you know there is a generational shift i think the and sudapriya who you guys are more in academics now or, or closer to the trainees 
than I am. But there is a generational shift, and I'm seeing it at the academy, which are people that have left, sort of said, enough already, I can't be a Kaiser or these other systems. I'm, I'm, I need to learn something else in addition to the conventional medicine. So I'm a bit biased, but there's a generational shift where people um, are, as health professionals, at least more open to it and not condemning it, whether they do it themselves yet, maybe not, but they're at least open to it. That's my experience, but I'd be interested in your guys' view. Yeah, especially Priya, I think you're a more recent graduate than either me or Brad in terms of medical school. So just wondering if you observed um, any sort of more openness um, to alternative um, modalities, including acupuncture. That was actually one of the follow-up questions was, you know, the same would the same apply also for acupuncture uh, as to yoga? Mm. I think it's, I mean, I think we are all a bit biased here on this, on this, um, you just by nature of what we do and what we've chosen to do. I can definitely say though, even, you know, I, I, I guess I am a bit more of a recent grad and it is, it depends right now yet still what part of the country you're in. Um, it is definitely, I mean, I can say that I can have conversations about these things here or patients will come to me and ask me about them. And it's, it's like, common talk. It's not like something crazy that you're bringing up. Everybody is familiar. Many people are reaching out to find out more about it. Um, In other parts of the country, I went to medical school in Kentucky. That's where I grew up. That's where I'm from. It is becoming more commonplace, but it's not quite there yet. Conventional medicine is um, still the majority of what is practiced. I still think throughout, um, throughout, honestly, throughout the country, right? We're, we are sitting in San Francisco. We are sitting in probably one of the most um, forward thinking, sort of open-minded, looking for the unconventional places in the nation. And if you go to most small cities in the country, it's not quite there. And I'll agree um, for medical schools, there is, there is a sprinkling there is a little bit of ideas placed, but I don't think that it's necessarily um, common practice yet. And I think once, I think we can say that it's common practice once insurance companies start covering more of it. Um, until then, I think we're still questioning and scratching our heads about it. And uh, I have to just chime in and say, like, as um as a physician that's been teaching medical students for here at UCSF for the past 20 years or so, um, it's really been a, a real shift that I've observed for sure in terms of the student population. Just, uh, I don't know whether it's, the, I think it's sort of student driven in a way. I think the student population is so much more interested in learning about this that um, perhaps more offerings have also um, come into existence as a result. Um, but I'm definitely finding the students are so much more educated about alternative therapies and um, actually ask really great questions and seem to have um, a sort of healthy skepticism actually about um, conventional medicine necessarily providing all the you know answers being a panacea um, for 
uh, all ills. Um, and so I'm really finding that uh, shift in students of being much more critical in thinking about what are the benefits of and limitations of conventional care and how might alternative treatments also have benefits and limitations and really being able to look at both in a balanced way instead of having, I think, a, a sort of a preordained bias perhaps, you know, to the same extent as previous generations may have had. So I personally find that very inspiring, you know, as a, as a teacher and working with medical students. Yeah, I think just to put it in perspective too, when I was in med school, um, uh, we had to form our own interest group around alternative medicine and invite our own speakers that we, you know, I was at Stanford and no one had any interest in helping us. Um, <laughs> And, you know, here we are, you know, 20 years or whatever it was, 15 years later, maybe the, you know, the Stanford opened an integrated medicine clinic, um, the UCSF has the OSHA's, like there's all these medical schools now have these centers. And then, you know, just decade by decade, I think we're seeing more and more of a shift. So it's slow, um, but it's happening, which I think is, you know, fabulous. And acupuncture, I would say, um, on twofold. One is um, they've created doctoral programs for acupuncture um, mm -hmm. for it to help penetrate some of the different um, structural barriers that happen in the setting of delivering of healthcare. If you have an end degree, a doctorate degree, it'll, it sets you up for insurance reimbursement and other opportunities ahead. And secondly, the medical acupuncture uh, effort uh, to train MDs is really moved forward a lot. And then I'll say the VA system they're doing what they call battlefield acupuncture, where they're teaching them in two weekends acupuncture and so that they can use them for acute, simple things um, in the ER and in primary care, which is fabulous through the veteran hospital system through the country. So, so that's all, you know, significant progress. When uh, I'll say, um, I can say this now, I think, because there's hopefully a limit on being prosecuted. But when I worked in the emergency department at the VA, uh, when I was at UCSF, because our San Francisco VA is part of UCSF, um, I was trained in acupuncture and I would just do acupuncture. I mean, people would come in at 2 a.m. or or whenever, three in the afternoon with dental pain. It would take, you know, 45 minutes to get you know some pain medication for them. So I said, look, I can put a needle in you right now and see if you get any benefit, you know, pain relief. And sure enough, we were we were, we were doing it. But I was, you know, doing it clandestine. And, uh, you know, totally under the radar. And here we are now at a national level, the central office of the VA is training doctors to do it. So that's progress. Absolutely. A um, couple more questions here. Um, let's see. I've been frustrated by how medical care carves up, carves up my body into separate specialties rather than one connected body. Will integrative medicine replace palliative care or become integrated with internal medicine? Part of the problem is, of making a board specialty out of integrative medicine is it's sort of an oxymoron, right? We're talking about treating the whole being and yet now the <laughs> specialization. Um, but, you know, you could think of it as sitting alongside the other specialties. So you're a pediatrician who's also board certified in integrative medicine or a psychiatrist that's also board certified in integrative medicine. In my case, an internal medicine doc. Um, so you know, uh, that's how a bit how I view it is ideally it's in parallel. Ideally, all doctors would would become primary care, would be integrated medicine docs, you know, all primary care physicians, whether they're pediatricians or any generalist, basically, psychiatrists, 
pediatrician, internal medicine docs, family medicine docs would be also trained in this. And for that matter, even the specialists, if you just consider lifestyle medicine alone, we know that 70% of chronic illness could be mitigated. And some of the stats show by 70% if we invoke lifestyle, um, just lifestyle, forget about acupuncture and herbs and chiropractor, all these other things, um, yoga being part of lifestyle. So um, there's a financial incentive. Uh, I think the insurance companies and the government, which by the way, already delivers two thirds of the insurance to the country between the VA, the Department of Defense and Medicare and Medicaid. Um, I think the government and insurance industries will be more and more motivated to get self-care and lifestyle. And that's sort of the bedrock in my mind of, of integrated medicine. And someone says that the pandemic sent so many yoga classes to Zoom mm. for those with regular practices that might have worked well. Do you concur that new students really need in-person classes? And if one feels hesitant still to do that, are there any virtual classes or videos that you'd recommend? Priya, I think that's a great question for you. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to answer my part of it. And then... Um, and when I say that, what I mean is, so for somebody who is, if we're talking about asana specifically, which is, you know, more or less what we talked mostly about in this lecture, talking about asana, the physical practice only for a completely healthy person, a younger person without many, you know, without physical medical issues, things like that. I think it's, it is fine to to start a class online. Um, I think it's better to do it. So there's a couple of different setups that people have online. For some people they have where it's just a teacher with the camera, they're doing the moves and then you are following along. It could be, it could have been pre-recorded. it doesn't matter. And then there are other ones in which the teacher is showing the moves and then they come up to the camera and really actually watch you do it. It's almost like a semi-private type class. I, in, you know, in the ideal world, I would say that's the best way to go about it only because so many people do experience small and minor, but can be significant setbacks if they get an injury doing something, something as simple as if they put their wrists the wrong direction. Um, and then they, you can fall on your wrist if they're not strengthened enough, if you're, um, if your body is not stacked in the proper way. So if it's somebody who's a complete beginner, most of the time it'll be, it'll be safe if you follow a complete beginner's um, video. Now, if somebody has, if there's somebody who has any sort of physical ailment, if they have it like, you know, just like Brad said, if they have a back ailment, if they have wrist issues, if they have any of the other things, it's pretty important that they be in person. But even in person, um, you know, if you're at a, just a giant class with one teacher in the front, that makes no difference, uh, you know, if they're not actually paying attention to you. Now, this is where I'm going to punt this question a little bit to Sudha and say that I think that if you're looking for a real yoga, full yoga practice, then I think you need a actual like one on not one on one, but an actual teacher who can guide you through many different things through through your breathing practices and all those types of things and somebody that you actually develop like a connection with. It can't just be a 
theory teacher. But Suda, I was going to punt that to you to talk a little bit more on if you had any thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, I think this came up a little bit towards the tail end of our last session as well, um, which is like, you know, what do we define as yoga? If we're just talking about asana practice alone, that's one thing. If we're really trying to embrace yoga as a a full sort of path of self-inquiry and self-transformation, I think it does require um, the guidance of a teacher and um, and more of a um, in-depth training by the person who's also working with you as a teacher, because in many of these asana classes, which are many yoga classes that are only asanas, you know, you may have just someone who did a 200-hour teacher training, and that may be more than sufficient for guiding someone through basic poses. But if you're really trying to help them to develop, you know, this transformation of consciousness, which is really what yoga is intended to be a uh, Georg Fjörstein, you know, called yoga, the, the ultimate psycho-spiritual technology. Uh, he wrote a, a great book called the yoga tradition and he calls yoga, you know, like the ultimate psycho-spiritual technology. So if you're embracing yoga in that full fledged way, um, I really think you need a, a, a teacher that um, has explored the depths in themselves and is therefore qualified to guide you on that journey of self-inquiry. So from from that standpoint, you know, I really feel that there are more traditional yoga schools um, that would probably be better served um, to give you the proper kind of guidance and maybe help you connect with a good teacher. So here, you know, in the Bay Area, um, we used to have the Sivananda Yoga Ashram. They used to have a, um, a, a organization right here in the city. But during the pandemic, they unfortunately shut down. But they still have their uh, center in Grass Valley. So that's a place that I really recommend people that are more interested in yoga in a sort of full-fledged way um, might want to check that out. So uh, it's in Grass Valley, the Sivananda Yoga Center. There's a couple of other really well-established yoga centers here in San Francisco. The Integral Yoga Center, um, I think it's on Dolores Street, is another really good one. Um, It's sort of in the tradition of uh, Sri Aurobindo, and um, it's a really, again, just very deeply rooted, I think, in all of the different limbs of yoga and has teachers who are really qualified um, to guide you um, in that direction. Um, And uh, and again, probably if you went to a good Iyengar, you know, trained yoga teacher, you probably would do pretty well, you know, you could probably do pretty well. But again, I would really encourage people to ask, what is their training? Is it is it only the 200 year, a 200 hour, not 200 year, <laughs> 200 hour course? Or, you know, is it something more in depth where they really, um, you know, have studied it for many years and are really in a position to teach it? You know, it's just so ironic in the in the original history of yoga I mean, you weren't even qualified to be a student, first of all, a student of yoga until you did yamas, niyamas, really lived in a residential setting with your yoga teacher for several years, um, really developing the disciplines and the ethical grounding to take up yoga as a student. And then then once you mastered yoga um, as a student, you were still not qualified to teach it for at least another 10 years of just being a very adept student yourself. Um, and you weren't actually even allowed to teach it till your yoga teacher said, you're ready now 
to be a teacher. Um, and so that was what this kind of lineage of, you know, from, from teacher to student, teacher to student, that's how yoga was passed down, you know, for millennia. So in this, in this sort of day and age, I totally get it that um, there's a lot of benefit to teaching asana practice to a lot of people. And you don't necessarily have to have 12 years of discipleship to, uh, to be a good yoga instructor. But, you know, again, taking on yoga as a, as a sort of fuller practice to really guide you in self-transformation is another undertaking altogether. And for that, I do encourage people, you know, to really think about seeking a more um, traditional sort of authentic, for me, what I consider authentic yoga, which is like based in a long tradition, not something that's necessarily um, just uh, a few, few couple of hours in the making or a couple of years in the making. Yeah, the only thing I'll add just back to a bit of the more mundane um, is, you know, there's a mix. I, I work with some yoga teachers that they've, been forced to do it in a mixed format. So they do it on Zoom, but they often will do at least several sessions with you in person. Maybe it's outside or something. So they you have that connection, you know, and then you can go to Zoom or do it mixed. Um, and it's very different than just watching a YouTube video. Um, so there's sort of asynchronous learning, which is like you're watching a video and you're following it and there's synchronous learning. Um, and so always synchronous is better than asynchronous and ideally some mixed format at a minimum uh, works well too. So maybe you go to a retreat center somewhere. Um, one of the ones who talks about, or, you know, it could be anywhere. And then you come back and you're doing something online with them, but you have that connection. They know you, you're, you know, them, there is a different sense of, of uh, learning. Yeah, really nice um, additional comments there, Brad. Um, and just looking, there's a couple more. Uh, I think one more question we didn't get to, which was, which books might you suggest to patients to find out more about yoga? I have a couple of favorite books, but wanted to ask you first, Brad. Uh, do you have any particular ones that you like to recommend? I love Richard Miller's um, eight-part series um, called... The Yoga Matrix, I think it's called. Um, and I don't know if it's a book, but it's definitely audio. Um, but that's, it's pretty deep. That sort of goes deep. Um, and, you know, BKS Iyengar has written several books that I like as well. Um, yeah, Light on Yoga was his first one. <laughs> How about you, Priya? Do you have any couple of favorite ones that you'd like to recommend? I'm trying to remember the which book this is. It's usually an orange book that I I routinely go back to, and um, I can't remember even. It's it's one of those ones that many people use um, in the very beginning, and I'm googling it right now. So if I find it, <laughs> I'll let you know for orange okay. yoga book. All right. So while you're saying, let me just say I said the name wrong. It's Richard Freeman. I think ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Richard Freeman. Uh, the yoga okay. the yoga matrix. Richard Freeman. Okay, great. Um, and then uh, one that I like to recommend to people is by uh, Timothy McCall. He's actually a physician and he's, uh, he's written a book called Yoga as Medicine. And I really, um, I think that's a great, very accessible book because a lot of people are interested in yoga for self-healing. And I think he uh, approaches the subject matter in a very practical and safe way. So that would be one to check out. See, and I'm thinking there's a couple of other ones. Um, 
along the li uh, lines of um, the heart of yoga. That's by uh, Desika Char, who is actually the son of Krishnamacharya. Remember, I was uh, mentioning in our slide deck last week that Krishnamacharya was um, sort of like the founder of modern yoga. And um, his son, Deskachar, sort of continued his tradition. Um, they're considered the founders of Vini Yoga. But um, he wrote a really beautiful book called The Heart of Yoga, which I think captures the, the essence of what yoga um, is trying to do in terms of addressing multiple dimensions of being and multiple dimensions of wellness. I haven't actually read that book. I did finally find the book that I was talking about. It's not, it's not a great, like, read but it's got a lot of um intro and, and very basics and it will explain and break down asanas and mudras and what's called bands which are like energy locks and it's literally called asana pranayama mudra bandha by uh, swami satyananda saraswati all right and then another question for you priya as a pediatrician do you <gasps> recommend that parents teach yoga to their kids so <laughs> that's a that's a loaded question that I'm going to try to answer um, succinctly, and I'm going to say it it, it depends on the kid. Um, it really depends on the kid. So if you're going to talk, so there's there's also like pluses and minuses of many different ways. I know a lot of people who did yoga as a as a child um and as they grew up it's kind of like when you see the people who did gymnastics as a kid they're able to do certain things and move their bodies in certain ways that just take much longer to be able to develop into as an adult and so the familiarity with certain you know with certain movements with certain openings things like that can be absolutely great um, I find almost no downside to teaching yoga to children. Now, and I would say this about anything, a forceful sort of like, you know, you absolutely must learn this or else type, you know, kind of shove it down your throat because you have to eat your vegetables, you have to do your yoga. I don't know if that works quite as well with them. Um, I think definitely basics, but then, you know, the parts of it that they feel like latching onto. Um, that's sort of my, is sort of the way to go. I, I take kind of an organic route, an organic way of going about that. Um, and so that that's really what I would say about that. Um, I think there's many different ways to go about things. I think it would be great if many kids could learn some of these practices, especially, especially breathing practices um, and ju just having those ideas behind those ideas and those practices to not be something unfamiliar to them as they're growing up and having those as sort of tools in their toolbox to be able to go to at earlier ages, I think is always very, very helpful. So I, I guess my, my short answer is yes, I think it is great. There are plays, places around the world that teach yoga to children in schools very regularly. Um, and and if, if the child is going along with it, I think that that's great. Yeah, my opinion, I, I agree. And I feel like, you know, we all know that there's so much anxiety and emotional unrest um, in this more, more recent generation. And um, it's hard to sit and meditate. You know, a lot of they'll teach meditation and mindfulness in classes sometimes in school, particularly progressive schools like the Bay Area. Um, but it's hard for kids to sit. So, uh, you know, moving meditation, yoga, asanas, or 
um, in my experience, martial arts, you know, Tai Chi or uh, which is more internal style martial art, but even, even the other ones are great because then you learn to your point, how to regulate some of your emotions, how to, how to folk redirect your mind, how to manage your breath and how that affects your mind and body. So I think all those things, at least to introduce them. I know with my kids, I have a 16 and 18 year old and we, uh, we would introduce it, you know, of course they would then they did, they loved it until they were like eight and then they would just reject it. Right. So you, I think that's was Priya's point, you know, you can't force it, but there's a bit of a dance there, but at least you sort of introduce them to it and they can watch you do it and think that you're crazy, but they'll come back to it later. Thank you, Brad, so much for that uh, wonderful presentation, as well as participating in this discussion with, uh, with us here. We've got a really nice dialogue, I think. Um, Priya, thank you so much for your demonstration of those poses, uh, the carpal tunnel stretches, and, and just uh, what you bring to, the, to this practice as a pediatrician. Really, really illuminating. So thank you all for your attention and interest. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.